The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to welcome members of our armed forces who are tuning in from around the world over the Internet, and also listeners who are joining us on new affiliates in San Francisco, New York City, Boston, Miami, Chicago, and throughout all 50 states. Thank you for making us part of your Newsweek. In just a moment, advisor to President and Mrs. Clinton and best-selling author Mr. Sidney Blumenthal will be joining the program to talk about his latest book titled A Self-Made Man and what the 2016 candidates can learn from the 16th President of the United States. But before Mr. Blumenthal joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Sidney Stone Blumenthal was born in Chicago and is a graduate of Brandeis University. His career as a journalist began in Boston, where he wrote for the Boston Phoenix and The Real Paper. From here, Blumenthal went on to become a writer for The Washington Post, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and Salon.com. You also know Mr. Blumenthal for his books, The Clinton Wars, The Permanent Campaign, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, Pledging Allegiance, and now his latest offering, A Self-Made Man, the first of a four-volume examination of Abraham Lincoln's life and political career. Mr. Blumenthal was a political advisor to President Clinton between 1997 and 2001 and campaign advisor to Hillary Clinton in her 2008 run for the presidency. And as congressional testimony has revealed, the Clintons have greatly valued Blumenthal's friendship and insights throughout the years. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, best-selling author and political advisor, Mr. Sidney Blumenthal. Thank you for joining us today, Mr. Blumenthal. Well, very good to be here. Well, first things first, congratulations on your new book, which I want to mention is receiving rave reviews. Uh, Many of the critics were skeptical about yet another book about President Lincoln, but you seem to have won them over. What made you feel there was still more to tell about our 16th president? Well, thank you uh, for that. Um, It's often said there's nothing new to be said about uh, Abraham Lincoln. He's one of the most uh, written about uh, figures, uh, not only in American history, but world history. Yes. Uh, There is a museum in Washington across from the Ford Theater devoted to Abraham Lincoln containing all the books written about him, and it towers literally stories tall. But I felt I had something new to say and that the research would show something new. It was uh, about Lincoln's uh, growth and development. Uh, It was how Lincoln had become uh, a skillful politician and how, in order to become the great emancipator, he had to become a great politician. I brought to bear my own experience uh, as a journalist and as uh, somebody who had uh, spent uh, more than a quarter century in Washington, uh, including in the White House and working closely with the president. So I thought I had some understanding of how things really work, uh, even though it's, uh, it's, it's a long time since Lincoln. However, um, American politics and American government uh, still endures. It's still very, the fundamentals are still somewhat similar. And I was able, uh, through my uh, research, to discover many new things about Lincoln, and I hope to offer an original interpretation of Lincoln as a uh, great politician. 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up because this story is about the evolution of a leader. It is. Um, Lincoln uh, is somebody who um, quickly takes on leadership ability uh, when he emerges as his own person uh, to the surprise of everybody around him. He's amazingly self-sufficient. He arrives in a, uh, a small river town in the middle of Illinois, which is a wild frontier state, uh, at the uh, age of uh, 21, um, he's alone. He's left his family, his, uh, his father and his stepmother and his stepbrothers uh, and sisters have wandered off somewhere else. He's left them. He's, he's quite happy to leave them. Uh, and he's going to make it on his own. And the first thing he does is become an assistant postmaster, uh, and the post, it, which turns out to be a political post, because everyone who was appointed a postmaster received a political appointment. Mm-hmm. And the postmaster was also the teacher in the town and says to Lincoln, first question that Lincoln is asked is, can you write? And Lincoln says, I can make a few rabbit tracks. And he then becomes the clerk for the election. And from mm-hmm. then on... Mm-hmm gets involved in politics and never stops to the end of his life. Uh, he, um, he runs for, uh, his first um, election was not for public office. It was for the captain of a militia uh, in the, what was called the Black Hawk War. Uh, and he said that was his most uh, satisfying election. He was, <laughs> he was elected the captain. And what's interesting about it is this. Um, Lincoln, uh, when he comes to uh, New Salem, is um, alone. He has no family. He has no connections. He has no network. He doesn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. And he's immediately challenged by the young toughs in the town. They're known as the, uh, uh, the Clary's Grove Boys. And they're a gang who sort of intimidate other people around. And they run wild and they drink and they... Uh, engage in mayhem, uh, and it's a frontier town. And the first thing that happens is that the uh, the head of the gang, a man named Jack Armstrong, challenges Lincoln to a wrestling match. And Lincoln uh, wrestles him to a draw and uh, receives their respect. He uh, then, over uh, a short period of time, persuades them to become uh, what, in effect, is his first political machine. Clary's Grove Boys, a gang, become Lincoln's first political machine. They all join this little militia in this Black Hawk War against an Indian tribe, and they elect him, their captain, against the wealthier uh, mill owner, who also was running for captain of the militia. But Lincoln has the people, as it were, and that's the beginning of his political career. So he elicit the help of a gang by wrestling them to the ground. That's correct. <laughs> He's and he stands his ground, and the, and that's the beginning of his of Lincoln establishing his leadership. It's so interesting when, when I was reading uh, the the book. Uh, I was sitting thinking about the misperceptions that we have about Lincoln being quite a proper man, and uh, the idea of him wrestling. I don't. I, it just visually was tough for me to to conjure up. <laughs> well, there are all sorts of uh, incidents that one doesn't associate with Abraham Lincoln in this book. Uh, every everything from uh, uh, nervous breakdowns to uh, to comical duels that never happen involving broadswords. And, uh, you know, you don't think about this in terms of Lincoln. We we think of Lincoln as sitting in his his monument above us, uh, immobile. Well, sure. Man. We all heard the stories that he was, uh, you know, sitting in a cabin alone, writing by candlelight. <laughs> and this is the image that we have uh, in our minds. Uh, we don't really understand how he built his confidence and how he really came to be the leader that that he became. And I think this is what your book really does. That's unique 
you know, that's very unique. And uh, and I'm hoping that people will pick it up because uh, you have a special way of bringing that history to life. And uh, I appreciated that very much. Now, we have to take our first break, but stay right where you are. We'll be right back with more from Sidney Blumenthal. You're listening to the Costa Report. If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same way. Big data is being generated by everything around us all the time. Every digital process and social media exchange produce it. Systems, sensors, and mobile devices transmit it. Big data is arriving from multiple sources with ever-increasing velocity, volume, and variety. It's becoming the world's newest resource for competitive advantage, allowing decision-making to move from the elite few to the empowered many. The escalating demand for insights requires a fundamentally new approach to architecture, tools, and practices. To extract meaningful value from big data, you need optimal processing power, analytics capabilities, and skills. Find out how IBM Big Data and Analytics can transform your business. Visit www.ibm.com slash bigdata today. That's www.ibm.com slash big data. This is Sylvia Panetta inviting you to join us for the Leon Panetta 2016 Lecture Series. This year, we've been discussing an America in Renaissance or Decline, the challenges facing a new president. In the final forum, Secretary Panetta will discuss changing society, technology, and media with journalists Ted Koppel, Howard Kurtz, and Judy Woodruff. What impact does this have on politics, business, security, and privacy? Call 831-582-4200. Join us. Care from the Heart is a dedicated and professional home health care agency that's been serving families in the Tri-County Monterey Bay area for over 18 years. We help our clients and their families handle health challenges with determination, love, and humor. When you work with Care from the Heart, we provide assistance with the utmost respect. Your team will consist of nurses, case managers, and home care specialists who will listen and you will design a flexible program to fit your specific needs, either short-term or long-term. You might need help with medication, personal hygiene, meal preparation, transportation, companionship, household chores, or pet care. We can even help you with the dreaded insurance paperwork. If the time has come when you must step into the role of caregiver for a family member, naturally you'll have questions and concerns. Care from the Heart offers classes that provide specific information and skills you'll need to become the positive and supportive influence your family member deserves. And we protect against caregiver burnout by offering periodic respite care for you. Whatever your individual situation, now or in the future, help is available. For a complimentary consultation, call us at 831-476-8316. We can come to you or you are welcome to visit our office in Santa Cruz near Dominican Hospital. Our website is carefromtheheart.net.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is author, journalist, and advisor to President and Mrs. Clinton, Sidney Blumenthal. And we've been talking about his new book titled A Self-Made Man. Now, I think many listeners will be surprised to learn that President Lincoln once considered himself a slave. He had an early experience with being rented out as a laborer. Can you talk about that for a moment? It's an extraordinary statement that Abraham Lincoln made. Uh, Lincoln, uh, in 1856, um, at the moment at which he became a Republican, which was a new identity for him, we talk about the party of Lincoln, well, he had previously been a Whig, and that party had collapsed underneath him, split over slavery, and he had become a Republican and created the Illinois Republican Party. Campaigning during that year, he stood before an audience and he said, I used to be a slave. That's an, that's an incredible statement that Lincoln made. To identify oneself as a slave in that time was to identify yourself with the most oppressed group in society. They were, you didn't want to be a slave. You didn't want to say you were black. You didn't want to say you were this tainted low figure. But Lincoln said that. What did it mean? Lincoln actually did think of himself as a slave. He had been a slave, he thought, to his father. His father was an oppressed man himself. Lincoln was an impoverished, stunted, oppressed boy. His father had escaped from us from slavery. He wasn't uh, he wasn't African American. He was white. He was a poor white. He was a dirt farmer, but he was forced to compete for wages against slaves. So he fled Kentucky across the Ohio River into the free state of Indiana. He rented out his son until the age of 21, which was legal, as an indentured servant. That mm-hmm. would have been Abraham Lincoln. He took all of his wages. But Lincoln thought of his slavery as even more than that. His father... Lincoln was a bright boy, very interested in being educated. He was uh, incredibly interested in the wider world around him. Uh, he had only a few weeks of formal education. But he, and his father did not want him to read books. His father even beat him for reading. Mm-hmm. His stepmother um, protected him from his father for reading. Uh, his father thought reading was a form of laziness and would prevent him from learning a trade by which he would uh, advance himself in the real world. And he thought that this was just dreaminess on Lincoln's part. Lincoln was desperate to break away from his father's grip and from his family. And he uh, developed a fierce ambition, an, an ambition to of aspiration to us to become uh, something he didn't quite know what it was uh, at the, uh, but he um, wandering around Indiana as a as a wandering labor boy rented out by his father he would find local lawyers who had small personal libraries and that's how he discovered the law reading the local law books how he discovered the history of the United States. He read his first history of the United States that way, the Constitution. He learned about the Declaration of Independence, which to him was the foundation of all of his political thinking. All men are created equal. Mm-hmm. And um, all, in, in other words, Lincoln's character is tied up with the very idea of being a slave and of being a self-made man, by which he meant being self-emancipated. Interestingly, Lincoln, who was anti-slavery, he said he was naturally anti-slavery, emerges uh, in uh, different circumstances as the issue uh, becomes uh, uh, much more important over time uh, with the extension of slavery uh, on the... uh, at, at issue in the West, whether the West will become slave or not as a result of the territory gained from the Mexican War. And um, uh, Lincoln is not an abolitionist, but he's anti-slavery. And Lincoln, um, when he speaks about this, has a, has 
an, a very different vantage point than many of the abolitionists. They tr- the abolitionists are, uh, take a Puritan view of the issue of slavery. They are adamantly opposed to it. They regard it as immoral. Lincoln regards it as immoral. Lincoln has said, if, if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. Uh, but Lincoln, uh, unlike them, takes the vantage point of the slave himself. He often explains to audiences how the world looks from being enslaved, from being in a cage, from, from having no hope of escape. The abolitionists tell awful stories of the treatment of slaves, but Lincoln uh, has an unusual empathy, and the empathy comes from his own experience. Well, this is all personal for Lincoln, uh, as you say, he was uh, rented out as a laborer until the age of 21, and he had no freedom. He didn't even have the freedom to read, and he craved that freedom. And fortunately, as a white man, he was able to find a way to break away uh, from that life uh, and that destiny. Uh, but he saw others, uh, including uh, a trip as a young man to New Orleans, where he saw the slave trade and the plight of fugitive slaves. Um um, and he could see that not everyone was going to find a way to get out of that plight. Lincoln took two trips down the Mississippi River. He was the real Huck Finn. Um, he he took rafts uh, uh, carrying goods, hogs and other goods, for a local merchant to begin with, from uh, New Salem, Illinois, to down the Mississippi to New Orleans, which was the great commercial city. And uh, when he he had never, um, I'm sure he had seen slaves before, but he had never seen anything like New Orleans. New Orleans was uh, uh, one of the biggest cities in the United States at the time, probably the third biggest city after uh, uh, New York and Philadelphia. It was an international city, it was a banking city, and it was a center for the slave trade. And uh, there were slave auctions on the street. It was brazen. Uh, And young women, beautiful young African-American women, were sold on the street uh, for sex. Um, And not for one time, but as sex slaves. And Lincoln was um, horrified, shocked, Mm -hmm. according to those who took the trip with him. And he vowed he would do something against uh, slavery. Uh, he took two trips to uh, New Orleans, and it was there that he saw the full uh, uh, horror of slavery on open uh, display. Yeah, yes, and that also played a large role in addition to uh, his experiences as a laborer and uh, the strict father that, that he had. All of these things uh, played uh, an important role. We're going to take another break, but when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about his first attempt at looking to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia. You're listening to the Costa Report. Do you love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. Don't miss this year's 41st annual Strawberry Festival at the Walnut Avenue Family and Women's Center on June 25th. 
from 11 to 4 p.m. We will have live music, food trucks, raffles, prizes, giveaways, arts and crafts, street fair, Santa Cruz's own homemade jam contest, children's games, and a giant bouncy house, farmer's market and plant sale, and more. The festival will be held on the Walnut Avenue property located on the corner of Walnut and Chestnut in downtown Santa Cruz. Walnut Avenue provides free, subsidized, early childhood education, youth services, and comprehensive services for survivors of domestic violence. The 2016 Strawberry Festival is your chance to eat, play, dance, and win fabulous prizes, all while supporting Walnut Avenue so it can continue to deliver the programs that support you. The sponsors of the Strawberry Festival Festival include New Leaf Markets, Rosie McCann's, Irish Pub, Farm Fresh, and Red Tree Properties, and KSCO Radio. If you are really good at what you do, and if your experience is worth sharing, make an investment in your future. There is a huge need for quality corporate trainers. Help others become the very best they can be while building your own income. Join the John Maxwell team. The John Maxwell team has been certifying corporate trainers, executive coaches, and speakers for more than 40 years. The cost for becoming a certified John Maxwell corporate trainer is basically the same as a few credits at an online university. It's a small price to pay for a life-changing program. Once you become a certified John Maxwell team member, you are part of the team for life. Become a John Maxwell certified corporate trainer, executive coach, and speaker. Visit johnmaxwellradio.com now for a special free gift. That's johnmaxwellradio.com or dial 1-800-MAXWELL. That's 1-800-MAXWELL. Get in gear now. Coast Paper and Supply has been family-owned and operated since 1948. They have a wide array of products available, including brand name and eco-friendly cleaning supplies, paper goods, and compostable plates, cups, and cutlery. Whether your needs are for business or home, Coast Paper and Supplies' friendly and reliable staff have what you're looking for. They even accommodate special orders. You can find them at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz, Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4.30, or call at 831-423-3350. Coast Paper and Supply is a proud member of Think Local First. It's always open house at the Mike Young Real Estate Hour, and you are always invited to walk right in and join the discussion. Hello, I am Mike Young, and I love talking real estate with all the experts and with you. So get a jump on the Real Estate Weekend every Friday, 7 p.m. on the Mike Young Real Estate Hour, right here on Listen and Be Heard Radio KSCO. The Mike Young Real Estate Hour is brought to you by Thunderbird Real Estate, Real People Selling Real Estate, by Rick Williams at American Pacific Mortgage, and by Steve Manville at Farmers Insurance. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Sidney Blumenthal, who has just released a book on the life and presidency of Abraham Lincoln. Now, in many ways, it's the intersection of a president's life experiences and then the events which unfold that shape each presidency. Lincoln had an opportunity very early on to act to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, but that didn't go very well. Well, um, Lincoln was elected to the uh, House of Representatives from Mm -hmm. a district in um, central Illinois. Uh, and he went to Washington. It was the first time he'd ever been there. Um, he had uh, dreamed of being in Washington. He had read newspapers as a boy, memorized speeches of all the great orators. He had heard about Henry Clay, his great beau ideal, as he called him, uh, Daniel Webster, and so on. He arrives in Washington, and uh, he moves into a boarding house that was known as Abolition House. It's on the site of the current Library of Congress, but it was a row of boarding houses facing the Capitol. And uh, Washington was physically a different place then. If you can imagine Washington today, uh, near, right next to the Library of Congress where the boarding house, uh, Lincoln's boarding house was, is the Supreme Court building. And we can all picture that building. But it didn't exist then. And instead, right there was a slave pen, uh, a pen where slaves were gathered and then marched, manacled across 
in front of the capital, all the way to the Navy Yard, put on boats, and ship south uh, as, uh, as property, human property. And Lincoln saw all this. This is the world he lived in. Uh, in in the boarding house he lived in, at one point, slave catchers burst in and grabbed one of the black waiters, uh, who they claimed was a fugitive slave, and tried to uh, sell him into slavery. And another one of the boarding house members, who was uh, Lincoln's uh, messmate, as it were, um, had to run down to the slave pen and... and um, had to uh, find uh, the the man before he could be sold, literally down the river into slavery. That's and this was all to, happening in our nation's capital. And this is all happening in Washington. Now, as it happens, slavery is legal in Washington. The abolition of slavery happened state by state, in different ways throughout the North, throughout the late 18th century and early 19th century. But Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia itself, was a place where slavery was legal and slaves were openly uh, sold. um, Lincoln um, is a member of the Whig Party, and he is uh, part of a, a group of people who vote against the expansion of slavery to the West. After the Mexican War, uh, the U.S. had taken enormous amounts of territory from Mexico, including California. Um, California, partly because of the gold rush, was already de facto a free state, and that enraged the Southerners who controlled the Congress and uh, controlled the president. Well, it, it's still a free state, and it still enrages everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It enrages uh, a lot of reactionaries. Uh, yes, it does. It, yeah, California was 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 and is the state of the future, uh, and it really angered them. And they wanted uh, the other states to uh, to be open to slavery and settlement for slavery. All mm-hmm. the vast territories of the West, and the and the reason was economic. And political, because that would determine when those states were admitted to the Union, whether they would, if they were slave or free, the balance of power in the country and who would control the United States. Lincoln voted for a proposal called the Wilmot Proviso that would have forbid slavery in the West. And that proposal was always defeated, always defeated. So, uh, this issue remained uh, unresolved. Um, Lincoln attempted to create a consensus proposal among his Whig Party members for emancipation in the District of Columbia. Now, why could somebody propose that for the District of Columbia? The reason is that the district was literally the only federal territory in the whole country. Everything else was a state, but yes. the, but the district is not a state. It is federal land. So the national government, the federal government, could legislate on what happens in, in Washington, D.C., Washington City, as it was called then. Lincoln um, uh, crafts this compromise proposal. He works very closely with the leading abolitionists in the Congress, some of whom he's rooming with in Abolition House, as it's called, and um, draws up this uh, proposal. In effect, it's his own first emancipation proclamation. It calls for compensated uh, 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 emancipation. In other words, the slaveholders would be paid to free their slaves. Uh, The bill itself um, never even succeeds in getting into a committee or on the floor or voted on in the House of Representatives. That's the fate of Lincoln's bill, and that's how unpopular that cause was when Lincoln was a congressman. But it was such a smart idea. It was a smart idea to say this is federal territory and we can decide to abolish slavery here in this territory. It was was a a very strategic move, but it never got any traction. Exactly right. It's strategic, and 
and think about what Lincoln's doing. This had been uh, an idea that had come from the early abolitionists who had figured this out and had made uh, emancipation in the District of Columbia a great cause. Lincoln is is acting as a legislator to craft uh, a bill to create the widest possible support for that position. So he may be called a compromiser in some aspects of the bill, but the heart of it is emancipation. And that he's he's engaged in a a political task and a task of leadership, and it's an early example of his leadership. It fails, but um, it it show Lincoln learns a lot from it. He also um, makes significant strategic allies, and any and some of these leading abolitionists become his fast friends, and are vouch for his bona fides and the fact that he is a man of principle uh, when other abolitionists um, challenge him later when he emerges as a a political figure in the Republican Party. Also, we have to remember that emancipation in the District of Columbia preceded the Emancipation Proclamation. And Lincoln did do that when he was president. And it was compensated emancipation. unlike the uh, uh, emancipation that came from the Emancipation Proclamation. In the district, the slaveholders in the District of Columbia received money for their slaves, and that is how freedom came to uh, the capital of the United States. And Lincoln first learned about, thinking about, how to do this strategically as a congressman in the late 1840s. What I love about this story is that uh, not only when we think about his personal experiences, his personal passion for uh, allowing all the slaves to have opportunities to pursue the freedom that he somehow managed to uh, find in his own life. Uh, When we think about all of that, um, and we think about his attempt to negotiate or broker some kind of emancipation within Washington, D.C., and failing. Uh, the amazing thing was that it was just a stepping stone, that he didn't quit, he didn't become disillusioned, uh, he learned from it, and it's what happens next that's very exciting. We're going to take another short break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report. Caraccioli Cellars recently celebrated the fifth anniversary of their tasting room. This is what Enophiles had to say. Anna Russell, I love Caraccioli wine because I love the San Lucia Highlands and I think this is a particularly great representation of what SLH can do that's different. Um, using the most common grapes, Pinot and, and Chardonnay, and making something really beautiful and different in the area. I love the wine, so I always come back to almost every one of their events. My name is Jenny Franklin. I like it because it's very flavorful. It just is a good Pinot. It goes down without touching any sides. It's very good. Cold of lace. I really like the Brut Rosé. I like the older varietals too. I think it's just the way they manufacture it, the way that it, uh, they produce it is old world style, and I enjoy that. Visit the Caraccioli Tasting Room on Dolores Street in Carmel by the Sea. Or find us online at caracciolicellars.com or reach us by phone at 831-622-7722. If you're wondering what to do with all that data you're creating, do I have an offer for you? Tableau is drag-and-drop software that people of any skill level can use to analyze and turn data into something actionable. That's right. I said actionable. And isn't that what all that data is for? With Tableau, you can connect to any data in virtually any format and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, even big data sources are instantly combined into usable charts, graphs, reports, and dashboards. People can analyze data and drag and drop at 10 times the speed of a traditional business intelligence system. But the most important impressive thing about Tableau is that anyone can use it. And just to prove the point, you can get a free 14-day trial from Tableau just by mentioning you heard this ad. But do it now, because this offer won't last. For your free 14-day trial, visit Tableau at T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash Costa. That's Tableau.com slash Costa. Tableau Software. What's your data trying to tell you? 
Hi, I'm Andy, the produce manager at Ben Loman Market. This week, we are featuring California large cantaloupes, two for $5. Apricots, $1.99 a pound. Sweet yellow or white nectarines, $1.99 a pound. And juicy black plums, $1.99 a pound. We also have clustered tomatoes, $1.99 a pound. Mangoes, two for a dollar. And mini seedless watermelons, two for $5. From Washington, we have red cherries, three ninety-nine a pound. From Oregon, 18-ounce clamshell blueberries, three ninety-nine each. Don't forget to pick up a large seedless watermelon, only three ninety-nine each. In organics, we have Lositano kale, green kale, two for three dollars. Red or green seedless grapes, two ninety-nine a pound. And organic yellow nectarines, three forty-nine a pound. We carry a full line of fresh conventional produce and a full line of fresh organic produce. So come check us out at Ben Loman Market. Jungle Plant brings the lush outdoors into your home or office with plants that always look their best. Jungle Plant owner Dale Crable provides quality indoor foliage and a nurturing plant service throughout Santa Cruz and Monterey counties. Jungle Plant is mobile and comes right to you. Services include plant rental, a guaranteed weekly maintenance program, vacation care, and plants for gift arrangements. Call to schedule a free consultation, 831-462-5806, or visit jungleplant.com. Every Saturday from 12 noon to 1 o'clock on KSCO, it's Perspectives with Dr. David Biles and Tom Quinn. Perspectives covers a number of topics, including holistic health, vaccinations, and government waste. Don't miss the next exciting Perspectives program here on AM 1080 KSCO. Every Saturday from 12 noon to 1, right here. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Sydney Blumenthal. I'd like to switch gears for just a moment and talk about what lessons the current two candidates might take away from Lincoln's success as a great leader. Well, there are many lessons to be drawn from um, Lincoln, and some of them have to do with how he became a Republican. There's a lot of concern now about the fate of the party of Lincoln. Well, how did the party of Lincoln come into being? And what role did Abraham Lincoln play in it? And how was he the leader in creating the Illinois Republican Party? Because the Republican Party was created state by state to become a national party. And there were two overwhelming issues that concerned people. The first, of course, involved race and it was slavery, the expansion of slavery to the West, and whether or not the Western territories would become slave or free. Lincoln believed they must be free. And the Whig Party split between the Northern Whigs and the Southern Whigs um, over this uh, issue. But they also split over another issue, and this is an issue that people uh, have forgotten about in the history. And this issue is very relevant to today, and that issue is immigration. In 1848, the first great wave of immigration hit the United States. The Irish came over in huge numbers, and so did the Germans after the failed revolution of 1848, a liberal revolution in which tyranny was reimposed by local authorities. Uh, And what happened was uh, a a large nativist anti-immigrant movement grew up in the United States. It encompassed many Whigs who regarded um, uh, these immigrants as a threat to um, true Americanism. And they believed in one overriding principle, and that principle was that only native-born Protestants should hold public office in the United States. They formed a movement called the Know-Nothings, And they formed a political party called the American Party, as in Make America Great Again. And this is in the early 1850s, as the Whig Party is disintegrating over slavery. Lincoln is contemptuous of the anti-immigrant movement. He sees that the anti-immigrant movement is preventing 
the coalescence of the anti-slavery forces. He believes that, as he writes in a letter, that the anti-immigrant movement has a view of white people, writes Lincoln, that the slaveholders have towards Negroes. And he writes that those who hate immigrants should go to Russia, where there is not a base alloy of hypocrisy. Those are the words of Abraham Lincoln. It's so interesting because we have such an irony from the founder, one of the founders of the Republican Party, and then the uh, philosophy that uh, we have turned to uh, presently in the current election. Uh, But just to interrupt for just a moment here, one of the really important lessons that Lincoln learned early on uh, with his failed attempt in the District of Columbia and uh, and then further a little further on in his career was that without critical mass, without reaching across the aisle, without getting critical mass, there could be no social change. And it seems to me that the current candidates, they have to get some kind of aggregation. With Mrs. Clinton, it's the youth and white male vote. With Donald Trump, it's uh, in particular women the women's vote, <laughs> and uh, and he's done nothing to get any cro- any independents and, and Democrats to cross over. Um, isn't there a lesson there about not, if you don't have critical mass, you cannot affect social change? We would still be in the Vietnam War without critical mass. Uh, we would still not have civil rights without critical mass. It's only when you activate and tap into the imagination of the largest cross-population that you can truly lead. Lincoln um, understood that he had to create large coalitions of people who didn't agree on all the issues. Yes. But they had to come together because they believed in certain overriding principles. In his case, it was against the extension of slavery and against slavery. Uh, Lincoln had to bring in all sorts of different people to do this. And even during the Civil War, Lincoln had to keep uh, certain forces within the Union in a strategic way that tempered his ability to do everything that other people might have wanted to happen more immediately, including emancipation. So, for example, Lincoln... Did not was under enormous pressure and uh, criticized from the what we would call his left at the time from abolitionists for not issuing an immediate emancipation proclamation. And why didn't Lincoln do that? Because he had to keep in his own mind the state of Kentucky within the Union. It was still a slave state, but it was teetering on the brink, and he wanted to keep it in the Union because if we had lost Kentucky, the United States, then the war would tip against uh, against the U.S., and the Confederacy would win, and slavery would win everything. Uh, so he, he had to win certain military battles. He had to uh, get Kentucky under control before he could issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Yes, and Lincoln, Lincoln was a masterful strategist, and, and willing to even uh, subject himself to great criticism and pressure around this issue because this was the issue of his presidency, and, uh, and it was deeply personal to him. We now see Donald Trump, and the central showcase issue for him is immigration. No question, that's how he won the nomination or is about ready to get the nomination of his party. Let me ask you this. What is the central issue of Mrs. Clinton's presidency, I think the central Donald issue, Trump's got immigration. We're talking. We were talking about the clearly Lincoln. It was. It was abolishing slavery. I'm trying to get a handle on uh, Mrs. Clinton's central issue. I think that the central issue for Hillary Clinton's presidency will be inclusion of everybody in the empower in empowerment in governing the country she is she will would be if elected the first woman to be president that's an enormous accomplishment and change in the united states and people should not discount 
the hostility to her based on the fact that she is a woman in this position on the brink of becoming president. Uh, so I think inclusion is a major issue for her, and it includes all of the new immigrant groups, and it would continue the uh, the whole drive and movement of inclusion that was begun by President Obama. But you and I, I can agree, yeah, you and I can agree that message of inclusion, while incredibly important, is a more complex and difficult one to communicate. It's a very difficult one, and it requires political leadership and skill and, uh, and persuading people uh, the, uh, of the need to move in a strategic way so that um, while some people are critical about the timing of it and become impatient and frustrated and criticize a leader for compromising and vacillating, these are all criticisms Lincoln received, by the way. I'm not yes. comparing anyone to Lincoln. But, but, but it's true. It's true. This is how, this is how politics works. I also think that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, message will include attempting to lift up uh, the in, the middle class economically, but across the board, the whole question of economic fairness is tied to the issue of social and political equality, and that includes yes. when I talk about um, inclusion, it in, it includes um, social equality for uh, people in terms of uh, gender, in terms of sex, in terms of race and politically in terms of voting rights as well. Well said. And I'm afraid that is all the time that we've got left. Boy, did it fly by. I want to thank you for uh, spending time with us today. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Blumenthal. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management